Hi, and good morning and welcome to Boom It's on the Blockchain. Uh, my name is Alistair Caithness, and today we have a special guest. It's Frederic Grigard from the Cardano Foundation. How are you, Frederic? I'm doing really well, and thank you for having me. No, no, no problem at all. So just to kick things off, I usually ask for a little bit of background about yourself and uh, how you got into position you're in. Sure. Um, so basically, it, um, it it sort of started out with, you know, how do we democratize the access to capital markets and not just bank the unbanked, but also give, you know, access to Western countries and normal citizens to have the same access as like a hedge fund manager has or, or people on a trading floor and so on. Uh, so on that journey, I started building uh, banking infrastructure. And I suddenly came into some very large conundrums when you suddenly give people access to very sophisticated products and leverage and so on. You see that they're they're also losing money. They might not be winning money just because they get access to more sophisticated products. So I went, you know, a little bit around learning and education and teaching people how to trade and do different things. And then I ended up being, you know, what we investment banking call an infrastructure banker. So I was basically building up, uh, you know, infrastructure for exchanges and for investment banks, and for asset managers, but also robo advisors and so forth. And uh, from there, it was a sort of a quite easy step over towards a, a blockchain based world um, because, you know, blockchain is also a lot about social systems and, uh, and giving an equal access to technology to people around the world. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of the short version. Short version of your background. So I know some of these questions might be a bit basic, but for our viewers to understand, you know, most people out there know of Bitcoin, they've heard of Ethereum, and Europe is involved in the Cardano blockchain. So can you explain a little bit the differences from Cardano to like Ethereum and Bitcoin and why Cardano is going to be here going forward? Oh, the last part we can spend an hour on, and I would love to do that. Uh, let's take the first part first, because I think that's where most people stumble. So one of the large problems we see today is that um, there was quite a few people who was like a blockchain that will go away. You know, it's a, you know it's just a little you know technology hump and it was your fade away. But you know here like 14 years later it didn't go away, right? And um, therefore we we see um, we see some challenges because there's a lot of people who learned blockchain by looking at the Bitcoin blockchain, and the Bitcoin blockchain does one thing extremely well. It has one type of asset, the Bitcoin. It has one type of governance. So that governance is extremely stable. It's very, very hard to change the code on the Bitcoin blockchain. And you have a bicameral model. So you have the core developers and you have what we call the miners. And they're constantly in check with each other. And that means that it's extremely hard to give to bring new features to the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's very good if you look at uh, the Bitcoin as a as a store of value, right? So, 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 so that's amazing, but um, but it, it it only has one type of identity as well, which is these twenty six figures, right? So when you kind of look at the public and private keys, is one one way of identifying yourself on the blockchain. So this that's the, what we call the first generation of blockchain. The second generation of blockchain was the old Ethereum. Um, so Ethereum has now evolved, uh, you know, in the last twelve months, right? But the old Ethereum was this notion that you could replicate the power of Wall Street um, outside uh, the realm of the banks. And what's really interesting here is not so much that you know nearly every financial instrument as we know it today is has been replicated on Ethereum, 
Uh, what's interesting is that the capital formation has been replicated on Ethereum as well. So I don't know so much about your listeners. So you have to kind of stop me if you want to get one level deeper, one level higher. But what happens in the banking world today is that the banks actually control where capital flow. And what we saw with Ethereum is not only that the product was replicated, but also the capital formation. And this was a really a bit of a scarecrow moment for the for, for the banking industry, where waking up and seeing you know everything they built uh, could be replicated outside their control. Now, what we think of as the third level or the third generation of blockchain, such as Cardano or Algorand or Polkadot, or there's a few of us out there. What we do differently than the first two iterations of the blockchain is that we have multiple ways of representing value on the blockchain. So it's not just a financial value like a Bitcoin or a, a ETH or some kind of a securitized token, but it can be intellectual property right. It can be uh, music. It can be um, you know marriage. It can be your voting power. It can be anything you kind of, if you look at life today, everything you hold extremely dear to you lives in an Excel spreadsheet. So how do you increase the, let's say, the, the security, the immutability, um, and the provenance of that, well, you put it on a blockchain, right? So there are multiple types of representations of different values and assets. That's the third generation blockchain. The second part is multiple types of identities. So not just having a public and a private key, but having this notion that you can have a fully KYC and AML checked off uh, identity living on the blockchain or having a robot or a Uber driver where the Uber car basically has the, the notion of basically identifying itself um, like an internet of things on the blockchain. So what many people get wrong is that identity is not just one thing. Identity is a spectrum. And sometimes what you want to do is you want to say, hey, I, you, know, you don't need to know what my salary is. You don't need to know where I live or who my employer is. What you need to know is that I have you know, a certain amount of money set aside and a certain, let's say, credit scoring without you knowing the details. There we can use a cryptographic thing called zero-knowledge proof to basically verify mathematically that everything is in order in your system, but without giving everything away. We can also go the other way, like the travel rule in the US, and we can you know, take down our pants and show you all financial records with the glance of a second. And we can pull that back as well. So we have this you know, whole, whole range of different types and different levels of identities in the blockchain. And the third is governance. So as I said before, uh, I'm, by the way, a very big fan of Bitcoin. But what, what's really different than the third generation blockchains is that we have these different governance models. So on the blockchain, there exist different governance, different ways of representing democracy, different ways of voting, different ways of, you know, uh, expressing equality and stuff like that. And, and I think those three things with the power of metadata underlying all of that opens up a complete new ecosystem for applications and use cases which can live on a blockchain, which you will not understand if you learn blockchain from new on and today and you look at Bitcoin. Because then you will be so fixated into you know, one asset class, or just one asset, not even an asset class, one type of governance, right? Um, and then you're kind of, you know, what can I do with that, right? So, so it, it really is a treasure chest who's opening up. And what was so magical in the last 12 months is that um, more and more large enterprises, more and more innovators and trailblazers, and more and more nation states are waking up and saying, you know what, this public permissionless blockchains who has a different security architecture than what we see on the internet today, 
that's actually a place where we can see value in the future. Therefore, they, they, they come to Cardano and they come to some of the other blockchains and they're starting working with us now on putting really, you know, critical enterprise architecture, but also, you know, scaling businesses and putting that on a blockchain. Yeah, that's super interesting. So thinking a little bit about the types of tokens for people to understand there as well, you're speaking about like governance tokens. So, you know, I'm reading more and more about like utility tokens, governance tokens, and a lot of these new tokens that are coming to the marketplace as a sort of governance token, utility token, they're all running on Cardano. So can you give a bit of insight into that? Yeah. So one of the jobs I have at the Cardano Foundation is actually um, ensuring that that nation states, businesses, but also the average person on the street that they can actually take a bet and build on Cardano. And one of the largest problems there is around that is that to really use a public permissionless blockchain, you need to, to interact with something which we call a utility token. And the utility token is sort of the access criteria or is the, is the counterparty agreement that you're using the structure, um, which is called the public permissionless blockchain. And uh, on Cardano today, we have more than 6 million different tokens. So if you put that into the normal world, it would be 6 million different shares or 6 million different money classifications or 6 million different ways of representing assets or value or, or whatever that might be. But a true blockchain needs a cryptocurrency. In my case, is ADA or ADA. Um, but a cryptocurrency doesn't necessarily need a blockchain. So what really is, is, is one of the powerful things about these blockchains is that you, um, when you have a normal centralized architecture, what you're trying to do is you're trying to protect what we call the attack vectors. And that is the places where this, you know, this, this server or this you know, operating system is touching the outside world. Because that's where a hacker comes in. That's where somebody can either place, uh, uh, you know, a worm or, or or change your data or in other ways do something. But when you look at the internet today, the internet basically connects with everything. So you know you have really have close to zero value in the modern business world today if you cannot share or, or work with your data with third parties. That means you you nearly cannot imagine any model anymore, right? And what we are then doing with the blockchain in terms of the security architecture is we're turning that upside down. And we're saying, you well, know, everybody now have access. So we have an unlimited amount of attack vectors. But to do that, we need to have a layer who protects us. And that's what we call the networking layer. And that's in, in, in our terminology, that's what we call validators or stake pool operators. Uh, in Ethereum and, and, and in Bitcoin, that's the traditional what we call the miners. And that's the people who really operate the blockchain. And when you think through the game theory of this, there's different ways of ensuring that you cannot create a, a, a consensus or take over 50% of the network and start changing the data, start doing things. And one of the things you want to do is you want to ensure that there is an option. It's an optionality. You don't need to have it, but there's an option that you are anonymous. That means that if you, you know, have $100 and you're living in, in sub-Saharan Africa, what you can do is you can be a part of securing the Cardano blockchain by running a node, by running a copy or, or like a, a full database of the Cardano blockchain on a, on a Raspberry Pi or a Stone Pi, a little computer, right? But, you know, in theory, you could try and do quite a lot to try and find out, you know, who is running the majority of stake in the network and, and then try and take over the network. That's why Bitcoin is so secure because Bitcoin has a lot of value and it has a lot of miners. But even in Bitcoin, you see centralization, you have these mining conglomerates. 
So what we do on the Cardano blockchain is we allow people to be anonymous and then basically not share who they are and what they do and where they're incorporated and so on. But also a lot of people do share, right? So we have, you know, a lot of stake pool operators who very clearly says we are here to change the world. We are here uh, to to ensure that Red Cross and United Nations and other people, they get a, a different funding model or, or so on. But this optionality that your identity can be revealed or not revealed is a part of the security architecture of the blockchain. And I think a lot of people kind of misunderstand that. And the driver of all of that is ADA because that allows you not to have a normal standard software agreement, a software as a service agreement, where you kind of have to sign some terms and conditions to use it and you are paying to a centralized counterparty. But in this case, you're paying directly to the network, to the protocol through this utility token. The flip side of this is that a lot of people thought, oh, this is a good opportunity to earn some money and they might be investing in it, not because they want to interact with the blockchain, but because they, they sought a, you know, an opportunity. And that's where the regulatory environment becomes extremely um, interesting because it, it doesn't always matter how you design the token and what is the intent of the token. It is how people use the token who sometimes, uh, from a regulatory perspective, put you into problems. Um, so one of the jobs of the Cardano Foundation is to ensure that there is clarity around the design, the intent, but also as much as possible, the regulatory standing of the token so um, that you don't need to worry about any consequences when you use the blockchain as intended. Yeah, that, that, that's super interesting. You know, I, I was reading an article on your website about digital regulation, but, you know, you think of the SEC coming in America a lot of these crypto early cryptocurrencies, they're saying they're securities, and now everyone's doing sort of security tokens. But can you explain the difference so people can understand sort of between a security token, like a utility token and a cryptocurrency, and how they all uh, operate on the Cardano? So that's nearly impossible because that would basically <laughs> take us into a huge disclaimer saying if you sit in this country, in this specifically context, and you have this type of incorporation and you use it for this, then it will be A or B. So let me take it up just one, one level higher, right? So in, in the US specifically, there is something which has been used for many years is called the Howey test. And the Howey test sort of have different... Uh, testing schemes towards if it's the security or not. It's coming way, it's, it's from way before crypto even was thought through, right? So this was basically a, a part of how you basically evaluate uh, capital market instruments, if it's the security or not. So that's sort of been the, the, the guiding line for, for many years. And we're now seeing some movement from the SEC about clarifications around that. But, but in, in essence, the way I think about it is that any good country and any place who want to you know, promote innovation and job creation they need to have what we call a token classification. So in Switzerland, where I live and, 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 and where I operate, right, we helped uh, the, the regulator to come up with a really strong token classification. And, and now the Australian government is, is asking for something similar. So we're actually delivering uh, our view from the Kadana Foundation about what we think would be a good token classification in Australia. And what we're really thinking about from a Swiss context is we're saying, you know, there's, there's, there's different types of tokens. And that's sort of, I think that's what you're asking for here, right? So we have what we think about as an asset-backed token. And an asset-backed token is, is, is very often what other people call a security token, right? So basically what it does is represents ownership, uh, ownership rights of something. That can be a commodity, it can be part of a company, a part of an operating model. It can also be a revenue flow, a future revenue flow, and so on. Then we have what we call a utility token. A utility token gives you access 
to a service. So you don't have ownership. You just have access to a service. Think about a token when you're washing your car, right? So you buy a, like a token in a, in, a, in a vending machine and you you put it in and then you can, you know, use the, the water and the, and the hose and, and those things to, to, to have a really nice car, right? And the utility token is, is really like that. It gives you access to, to the, all the functionalities of so the multiple different types of identity, the multiple different types of metadata, the immutable database and the networking infrastructure, right? So it's a, it's a, it gives you access to use the underlying infrastructure. Um, and then uh, you have, you know, in between you have what we call, so you have a payment token as well. So a payment token is used to pay for. So that's the equivalent of cash, right? So if you think about it, that's probably what you were alluding to when you say cryptocurrency. What a lot of people are thinking about with a cryptocurrency is that there's like three or four functions of a of what a currency or is doing, right? So it's a it's units of an account, it's a it's used as a as, as pay, as a mean of payment, right? Uh, as a storage of value and so forth. And um and and a payment token under the Swiss classification basically is that's it. And then in the Swiss regulation, we think about it as a, there's also a hybrid function. So you could have a token who does two things, for instance, right? And then it gets a little bit more complicated. But um, the good thing about that is that you have extreme clarity about who's the regulator, what is the rules you need to follow, what is the tick boxes who need to be in place, right? Um, and then you can basically ask the regulator directly and say, you know, my current understanding is this is X. Do you agree? And then they basically say, yes, we agree or we don't agree. And then you have clarity, and that means that you can move forward. And that's why we've seen such a big job creation in Switzerland, where you know more than a thousand companies have flocked to Switzerland to build blockchain and to to innovate around blockchain and enterprise and cryptocurrencies, because there is this strong security around what is it and what isn't it. It, it gives you you know room to build, right? And uh, and I think that's if I had one wish, I would wish that there would be more clarity in the U.S. around that. Because it will uh, allow innovators and allow people to really truly explore what the blockchain enables them to do in the local societies, for the local businesses, and for the local, you know, um, uh, governments and and and, and city states, right? Because a lot of this is really good for voting systems. It's really good for uh, public infrastructure. It's really good for uh, social security identification schemes. It's really good for tracking viruses. It's really good for you know anything who's like you know, enterprise critical where you have multiple third parties who don't necessarily trust each other and that you have a high value transaction, not in terms of money, but in terms of if something goes wrong, that it goes really wrong. The blockchain is a really good place to look at. Yeah. So, so where does stable coins fit into all of this within the Swiss system? Yeah, well, so stable coins are kind of Normally, it, well, so stable coins has different ways of designing a stable coin. So we probably have to go back to terminology here, right? So the I, I don't know. Are you familiar with fractional banking and full reserve banking? Yeah, I know a little bit about, uh, about that. My dad was a bank okay. manager. But if you want to just go over it briefly <laughs> for the okay, uh, yeah. Your, so the whole banking system as we have today is actually um, is designed in such a way that the bank never holds all the amount of money which is supposed to hold, right? So when you when you when you look at, at at how money is created today, what what actually creates money is not the central bank; it's actually the corporate bank. So if you go to a bank and you want to have a mortgage, you want to buy a house or something like that, they're actually printing money to issue that loan to you, right? And that all of that flows in through 
the, the double bookkeeping model up to uh, to to once to one set of balance sheets, right? But that also means that we have this concept uh, in banking today, which is called a bank run. And in this case, we're not speaking about blockchain at all, right? We're just speaking about normal banking today. So 99% of all banks today, if all of their depositors comes and claims their money today, they won't be able to get it. And it's got even worse after money got digitalized, right? So you, if you knock on the door in a crisis situation and you want your money out, there won't even be that amount of money which is issued. So there is not enough physical money issued as there is actually money in circulation. Most countries has less than 10% physical money compared to the money in circulation. So you have this really big problem about a bank run. And that's why you have regulators. That's why you have compliance. That's why you have, you know, Basel III and all those things in place. So when we port that into the crypto space where everything is digital by definition, one of the beautiful things in the digital space is that you, you can see everything. You can see the ledger. So you can see exactly what is owed and, and you know, what is there, right? So, so that means that you have a good way of, of actually, uh, you know, doing an audit. And what we think about is when we think about stable coins is that most of these cryptocurrencies, they have very high volatility. So most of these coins are extremely small in volume, right? So there's not a lot of them. That means that when people are trading them or using them, the fluctuations in price is, 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 is really high. And that basically hinders a lot of them from being used in daily things like buying a pizza or paying rent or, you know, there's always these funny questions, you know, would you like to have your money in dollars or Bitcoin? And, you know, a lot of people will be very strong and say, I want it in Bitcoin, right? But then they realize, you know, actually I pay rent, I pay school, I pay social security. I actually, 90% of my expenses are actually in, in a fiat or in dollar-based economy. So I actually need to then think twice a little bit about how I hedge it. So the notion of a dollar-based or, or an asset-backed stable coin is that, um, that the, the token represent, you know, one dollar or one euro. So one token, one euro and so on. And then you you want to get to a situation that you have sufficient trust that if a bank run comes, that you have a full reserve on the other end. And there we've seen, unfortunately, there's been some cases where they said that, you know, there would be, if there would be $1 million in circulation and there's 1 million tokens, there shouldn't be able to come a bank run because, you you know, there's 1 million and 1 million, it, it equals out as double bookkeeping. But there's been some situations where that's not been the case. And, and, and the issue of the, of, of the token has been doing some other things, maybe investing in some things or, or some of it has been locked into a security fund or whatever that might be, which means that people couldn't get their money, which is the same situation as we see in the normal world. That's why I started there. So the idea is that, you know, if you can do a fractional reserve asset-backed stablecoin or you can do a, a full reserve stablecoin, and that would be one of the I really think that a full reserve stablecoin, but I also do think a full reserve banking is the is the right way to move back to again, because I think you know it's that's what's really would bring security into the ecosystem and allow people to do commerce and not speculation from a banking perspective. Now the other way of doing it is you can do what's called an algorithmic based stablecoin. So here again we are trying to achieve the same thing, but you're using a different capital markets methodology. So what you're trying to get to is saying, okay, I'm not going to have the same amount of dollars or euros or yens in my account, like the full reserve. And I'm not going to have even a fractional reserve banking. So I'm not going to kind of think about that. I'm actually going to have a mathematical model who tries to incentivize, you know, the market 
to ensure that I'm keeping a pack which could be either a basket of currencies or or a one currency. And um, that's what we saw, for instance, with the Luna uh, situation, and we we saw different things. We actually issued a paper called Jet, uh, which uh, basically speaks about that on on Cardano, we just uh, had a company called Coty, who issued an algorithmic based stablecoin, who's using a lot of the uh, who's using the research we was issued from, uh, from us, but also using the uh, learnings from capital markets through the, the centuries, right? To to kind of put some some um, some methodology and some safeguards into this. And this is basically then what we call an algorithmic backed stablecoin. So you have an incentive model and a market who's basically trying to keep that pick uh, based on different market scenarios. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good explanation. The, the bank that's out here, JP Morgan, that most people know as Chase, they've issued their own coin as well. And they're sort of leading the field, certainly from banking in America. Can you explain how their coin's going to operate and will they be launching that in Cardano, et cetera? How does it work? So the the JP Morgan coin is, I think it's not, um, so last time I talked to JP Morgan, it was not a completely clear how they're going to use it. So it's a sort of an experiment and it, can, it has different functions which they're, they're looking around with. So in general, there is, um, there is a, there's a lot of, value to be had if you have an internal settlement function in a multinational corporate. So when you kind of think about it today, right, uh, and this is sort of a little bit odd when you speak about JP Morgan, right, but when you think about it today, a multinational corporate will be incorporated in, you know, maybe 50 or 60 different jurisdictions, right, and they will be under different accounting standards. And these balance sheets sort of all need to net up into one you know, group balance sheet. And there is transfer pricing and permanent establishment and where is intellectual property right generated and where is revenue generated. And there's a lot of things going on there. And, you know, a lot of these companies are then, you know, using corporate banking to basically send money from the daughter companies into the main, you know, group company and then basically, uh, you know, settle that balance sheet. And one of the functions, for instance, uh, you can do here is you can actually have an internal settlement instrument who basically, instead of using the capital market system and basically paying, you know, currency conversions and all of that to actually allowing to do that, you can settle all of that through an internal settlement instrument, right? So there's a lot of really good use cases where, we, where we've seen multinationals have been able to cut down on the cost of using banking, but essentially creating a virtual currency among the group. And that allows them to settle in the group balance sheets under the, you know, the, 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 um, the accounting standards and so forth. So, so there's a, there's a lot of really good use cases for doing that. Um, but I think JP Morgan is not still not hundred percent. They're playing around with it and uh, they, they have a really good innovation department. And I think one of the things they're doing right now is called project guardian. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, so Project Guardian is a project they're doing together with the monetary authorities of Singapore. Um, and uh, the, so it's basically an, and the Bank of Japan. And it's really interesting because they're really looking at, can we create a new settlement layer, uh, an international settlement layer for depth? Uh, and they've done the first transaction there. And they've done that on top of, of, of uh, let's say, a forked version of Ethereum. And when you look at the Kidano infrastructure, there's actually a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why a Cardano infrastructure would be a better infrastructure to do that than on a fork version of, of Ethereum. 
Yeah. So how is uh, central bank digital currencies going to integrate to this then? What's your thoughts on them? So I'm extremely negative on central bank issued digital currencies. And that's mainly because that what most countries are looking for is that they're looking for um, either better, cheaper, faster, or uh, a marketing instrument. And what I think about is, you know, as I said before, over 90% of the currency in circulation in most countries are already digital. So there's no reason why you cannot settle in T plus zero. You don't need to wait two days for settling a currency. So the other part is that when you think about who's actually printing the currency, it's actually not the central banks. In most cases, it's the, it's the commercial banks and the corporate banks who's basically taking that function. So if you do a CBDC, what you're actually sort of opening up the Pandora's box for is that you and I as normal citizens will be able to have a direct account with the central bank which means that you're challenging the the whole banking landscape as it is today, which, by the way, might be a very good thing, but you're actually walking towards a very centralized model. One bank, one currency, who knows everything about you, right? So you're, you're getting very much into sort of a, um, an Oswaldian kind of situation. So look at China, what's happening in China right now. So I don't think necessarily it's going to be cheaper either to put it on a blockchain, to be honest. Uh, the, the, the systems who's operating today are extremely cheap. Uh, so that's not where the price uh, or the cost gain is going to be had. So I think what's going to be really interesting is looking at, you know, what is the problems we are facing in society today right now? And wouldn't that be an opportunity for us to enhancing the functions of money? So this goes maybe back to what we spoke about before. What is the function of money, right? And I think one of the things we learned in COVID is that it's extremely hard for a government to give aid to the population who's really suffering in a holistic manner. So what you will be able to do with a CBDC if you design it probably is to use some of the blockchain functionalities which you cannot get access to in the normal system today, which will allow you to have a better fiscal and monetary policy. So let me give you a couple of examples to make it really clear for your listeners, right? Under COVID, a lot of governments, for instance, said, oh, we don't have the data and we don't have the certainty and we don't have the amount of accountants we need to basically check what the company is missing at revenue. So the barber shop down the corner, because it's not an audited entity, we don't trust them, right? They can say, oh, I lost, you know, one year revenue, but one year revenue, what is that, right? How great would it be that if you click of a button from your ERP system or from your teller, you can share last year's um, you know, balance sheet in your little shop right, in an audited fashion because it's audited by the smart contracts on the blockchain. And the government will, for that one year where there is a disaster, whether there's a hurricane or COVID, they will be able to see how much aid they need to give you. Not only were they able to see how much aid they need to give you, so it's in accordance to your needs, right? but they will also be able to ensure that it's being used for the right things. So there's a, a built-in escrow functionality in it, which ensures that you're not taking all of that and gambling it away at the local casino, but you're actually taking that and using that to feed your family or to rebuild your local community. Now, when the disaster is over, you click on your teller again and you kill that information to the government, which means you're pushing back the control to a self-sovereign entity, your barbershop or yourself, right? 
And in this way, you actually give the opportunity instead of as always is the, the biggest companies who gets the most aid and the biggest companies because they're already audited and there is more trust there, right? You actually give the politicians a way to 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 do something for the constituency, to do something for the for the citizens of the world. And I'm really lacking that in the CBDC discussions we're having today. I'm lacking this the bravery to look at what can we do to serve our country better, and how can we do that with CBDC. And the answer to that is if you start learning about third generation blockchains. You start opening the door for all sorts of things, whether that's helicopter money under distressed situations or when AI comes in and takes our job places or whether it's just plain monetary policy. It has a lot of opportunities there, which is really untapped and not, unfortunately not a part of the discussion today. And will a lot of that do with like innovations? Because, you know, we're, we're speaking about like huge amount of company, thousand companies moving to Switzerland to essentially work in Cardano blockchain. But with the CDBCs, um, or central bank digital currencies, you know, how can they keep up with the innovation that's happening on Cardano and Ethereum if they're running their own system, or how will it integrate? So here, there's uh, there's some debate, and um, you know, um, the way where we stand in Cardano is we don't believe in one system. We, well, first of all, we don't believe in one system takes over everything. But that's definitely not what we're looking for. We're looking for interoperability, right? Uh, the other part is that we don't think necessarily that one system should rule everything because then we are back in sort of a centralized manner, even though that one system is a permissionless, public, decentralized system. So we, we think a lot about interoperability. So we don't think so much about, you know, uh, are we a competitor to Ethereum? Are we a competitor to Polkadot or R3Core or Hyperledger? We think more about the systems today. So... We think about it. what if all the richest people in the world use the same system as the poorest and both groups have a better system than they had before? What would the world look like, like then? If we could add 2 billion people who don't have access to commercial systems, to banking systems, to social security, if we add them into the, to the marketplace today, what we actually will see is we will have an increase in GDP, right? We will have you know, more resources, we will have more interaction, we have more trade, we will have more brain power. So, so the way we kind of think about it is that, first of all, CBDCs needs to open up in terms of interoperability, but they more importantly needs to get more features who serve the need of the current population and the future population in association with the macro trends we're seeing today, like job losses from AI and, and other things, right? So what is the what is the what is the role of humans and humanity in 10 years from now in 20 years from now because we are not coded in our dna just to sit and then receive a check and be on social media and then do some virtual reality we are you know as humans we sh we evolve very slowly we are we are supposed to have a purpose we we are better in a group like the mo the majority of us there's of course some outliers right but the majority of us likes to have a purpose we like to be in a group where we contribute. And I think blockchain is one of those technologies which allows you to contribute and be in that group. Uh, so it's a counterbalance to a lot of those things as we are seeing today. Yeah, yeah that, that's a really good answer to that as well. So just as we go through the podcast, is there anything else in terms of developments with the Cardano Foundation you'd like to uh, let our viewers know about? Yeah, maybe one thing I, th I think, you know, which I find extremely interesting um, 
is that blockchain obviously is is very digital. So if it's if it's if it's born digital and it dies digital, it's really good on the blockchain. And that means that you know obviously capital markets, money, you know debt instruments, you know gaming, all of those things are flourishing. DeFi is flourishing on the blockchain. So what I would love to speak to your audience about a little bit is you know what happens when the real world starts touching the digital world, right? And one of the things I really like is that we've done a, a collaboration with the Georgian's National Wine Agency, where we're aiming at putting 100,000 bottles of wine on the blockchain. And why is that interesting? So by the way, we already have a couple of thousand bottles of Georgian wine on the blockchain. We thought it would be really interesting because it gives you a way of creating a permanent, immutable and verifiable record on the Cardano blockchain of the producer and of the quality, so the export quality uh, of the wine, including customs and so on. And that basically means that the, the government of Georgia will be signing directly on the blockchain and you can follow that bottle of wine, how that goes through the process. And you can interact virtually, you know, through the internet with the actual wine producing family and so forth. Um, but what it also did was it, it led to a new business model where suddenly there's, I call it blockchain citizens. There's some people out there who is really tired of not being able to track the footprint they have on this mother earth, the spaceship we call Earth today. And suddenly they were selling wine in regions they've never been selling wine in before. So, so the blockchain kind of merged away from being a supply chain functionality, right? Into being a distribution platform. And they saw that they were, you know, they had a way to keeping up with larger wine producing countries like Spain. I mean, we're really in the baby steps still, right? But, you know, Californian wine is very famous. Spanish wine is very famous. Italian wine is very famous. But Georgian wine, even though it's the birthplace of wine, is not very famous. So we have, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing, you know, new technologies enabling us to put real assets, like real physical things like, you know, agricultural produce, like grain and wine and stuff like that on the blockchain. And we are able to not just track the total cost of ownership and the, the record and the and the and those kind of things, but we're also able to track the, the top line that you can increase the top line of these things by doing that. And we see by doing that, we see complete new innovation is happening. And it's not only enhancing trust in the product, but it also creates awareness about the origin, the characteristics, and in this case about the Georgian culture. So it's even about you know, putting, you know, the focus on, on the Georgian culture, right? And this kind of engagement generates help to drive both export and sales, but also ultimately supporting and enhancing the economy and reputation of the state and the local industries, which means that suddenly small, you know, small producers of whatever that might be, small businesses are getting a chance again on the internet. Because you probably noticed that on the internet today, yet it's sort of like the, the big dog gets everything, right? So, um, so here, you know, you're actually creating, a, again, you're levering out the playing field and allowing more people to, to be able to, to contribute, but also to, to, to use it, right? Yeah, that's a great use case coming up there as well. And just on a final point, because I know time is precious in that as well, Frederick, is, you know, we're talking more and more about, you know, the environment and uh, CO2 emissions and this new green economy coming out. You know, and I know the blockchain is going to be key in this as well, but can give your thoughts on how the blockchain can help people out there understand more about CO2 emissions and how it's going to uh, assist with people going forward. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's two really large misconceptions, right? The first misconception is everybody's always speaking about how the blockchain is killing the earth uh, because of mainly the there's a, a type of, of blockchain using a proof of contribution mechanism called proof of work, which is Bitcoin and the old Ethereum, right? And and for the first time, you're actually able to measure very concretely what was the impact in terms of electricity when you're doing these transactions. And 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 there's something beautiful happening when you get transparency, right? When you get transparency, you are able to have a view on it. Uh, the problem is that you are not comparing apples and bananas. You're 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 really just you know you only have the apples. You don't have the bananas. And what I mean about it is nobody's looking at the Google's data center's footprint or the nation state or the central bank currency or whatever that is, because you don't have full transparency of the computing power they're doing and what that footprint actually looks like. And you have a lot of greenwashing going on. So but what I, what I highlight there, though, is that there was so much really great innovation going on. Oh, my God, this is the footprint we have. We need to go to sustainable energy sources. So we actually saw the Bitcoin economy was really, you know, trailblazing in terms of sustainability, in terms of energy. So they were, you know, you know, using uh, water powered cells. They were, you know, creating new types of batteries in sub-Saharan Africa. They were, you know, you know, really pushing the limit. And we saw a lot of innovation happening there due to the fact of transparency. The other part is, is what I represent. I represent a third generation blockchain who uses a different proof of contribution mechanism, which means that we use like close to one millionth of the amount of energy like, like Bitcoin is doing, right? So it's already a very green blockchain. And what we are doing a lot is, for instance, we had an impact challenge uh, one yeah, over a year ago where we actually wanted to put one million trees on the blockchain uh, and connect that with Internet of Things. So sensors, so how, uh, you know, the pH value in the earth and, you know, people on the ground monitoring. If the tree is on the outskirts of the forest, it actually grows different than if it's inside, right, and how much wind it gets and so on. So you have this ability to actually put one tree one token and then you have what's called um very you know changeable beta data coming from these sensors coming in there and that means that you can do a, a different grade of of carbon certificate than you normally would do the problem is that people don't really care about um how good the carbon certificate is you know they you know as long as they have a carbon certificate and what we then saw was you had this this ugly world where you know carbon certificate issued uh, can be used um, in different countries. So one carbon certificate is basically double counting or triple counting or quadruple counting. And then you can go back to the blockchain. And the blockchain is one of the first digital systems who solved the double counting problem. So I think, unfortunately, we didn't go far enough as an as a industry, as a blockchain industry, to start using the, the blockchain to ensure that we don't have this double counting. Because only by ensuring you don't have double counting, you can start looking at the quality of the carbon certificate. Uh, so, there, so there's a lot of talk right now from United Nations and other trade associations around that. But I think the, the general thing here is that the token or the, the certificate or the quality of the certificate is not enough. You actually need to look at um, the incentive models from the corporates uh, of the usage there. And you need to have an, nearly like a like you have in banking, you have a, what's called a CSD, a centralized security deposit. So it's like a database who ensures that we cannot both own the same Apple stock, right? And, and you need to put a, like a base layer of that into to the system as well. And there the blockchain is probably one of the best, if not the best way of doing that, specifically uh, Cardano or third generation blockchain.
So uh, I think transparency is what we're talking about, and that's what's important here. The more transparency we have, the more we can change the minds of people, and the more we can change the minds of people, the more we can educate people around what blockchain and other things does to solve those problems, uh, and the more we can get people to start building, and boom, now it's on the blockchain, right? Perfect. That's, that's a, a great way to end the show today then. So yeah, that's been super educational. I'm sure all our listeners and viewers are going to really enjoy it, uh, Frederic. Um, I, I know you're on the website cardanofoundation.org. Is that the best place to keep up to date with um, all the information you're releasing? No, it's unfortunately it's not the best place. Um, I mean, this is this ecosystem is really, really large, and and we are not a centralized entity who is in control of what's happening here, right? So everybody in the whole world can build on the Cardano blockchain, and that also means that we are not poli policing the blockchain, or we are not, or we also not checking, you know, what people are doing. So there's a couple of web pages I would, you know, I would encourage you to use. So the one is the the developer portal. So we have a very strong developer portal who has a hundred and 13 use cases so this is verified you know use cases where the code is already shareable and so on so these uh, this developer portal is an amazing place to be the other part is what's called cardano cube cardano cube is everybody who with no curation can basically upload um, there's a business card of their project and there you can see you know everything from agricultural supply chains to um, to gaming to DeFi, to voting applications and stuff like that is is being portrayed in there and then the, the, the third place, which I, I really like a lot, uh, um, is, is basically to, to, um, to monitor uh, the Cardano Foundation and Cardano hashtags on Twitter. Uh, but this is a very fast-paced environment. So, um, but there you, you see a lot of the discussions and a lot of what's happening. We have nearly a million people who wake up every single day and contribute to Cardano. Isn't that amazing? That's like a, a whole nation, the whole country is already living on Cardano. Um, so, so, so it's, it's, yeah, we, we haven't solved the equation yet on how to really, you know, uh, follow everything what's going on. Uh, the last place I want to talk about is maybe Catalyst. Catalyst is our, um, is sort of our innovation platform. And there's a place where you can get grants, but it's also a place where if you have a really good idea, you can upload that into Catalyst. And if you're lacking developers, then developers will come and help you. If you're a really good developer, but you're lacking a business model, then people like you and I will go in and maybe coach that person. And, and we've seen that incorporations is happening there. And there you will also get in contact with launch plat platforms. So these launch pads are really, you know, companies like, you know, Meld or Genius Yield and so on, who, who basically is like virtual accelerators who can help you with funding and coaching and business modeling and token issues and so on. So Catalyst is also a really good place to, to get in contact with what's happening on Cardano. Perfect, perfect. So that's great. Well, thanks again for coming on to the show, Frederic. Really appreciate it. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for talking about blockchain to the general public. Mm -hmm. No, no, not a problem at all. So thanks to all the viewers out there. You've been watching Boom, it's on the blockchain. My name is Alistair Caithness. Have a nice day.